It's good to be together this morning as we start off a new year together. It's good to worship with one another and sing those words this morning as we begin a new year and a new season to remember what our hope is built on, to remember what we're anchored to, that we are tethered to the faithful name of Jesus, right? And we need that. We need that as individuals. We need that as a community. We need that in our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our schools. We need to remember what and who we are connected to. And so this morning, I hope as we gather together as one community, that as we worship the name of Jesus this morning, you feel and you recognize the connectedness of where and who we are together. It's really easy to do life isolated. It's really easy to feel like we're all alone. And so as we come together to worship, we remember and we say one, um, once again that we are connected people. And so as we look at the word together this morning, let me just pray for us. God, we're grateful for your word to us. We're thankful that you have given yourself to us in these words, that you are not a far off and distant God, but you have come near You have shown yourself to us, and so we call again on your name, on your words, and we ask, Father, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, and that you would guide us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wanted to just take a moment as we begin this morning um, to thank those of you um, who worked so hard two weeks ago to send off Mark and Holly so well. Um, there was a, such a wonderful meal together as a community, and then we came back here and celebrated their ministry among us. And there were just so many that are in this room today that worked hard to pull all of those details together. And um, I had lunch with Mark on Monday, and we were at Olive Garden. That was really my last time probably being at Olive Garden for a long time. We, we do... <laughs> We do all, amen, we do Olive Garden quite a bit, and so um, I will be thankful for maybe just taking a break from the Olive Garden for a bit, but, um, and he just spoke to how meaningful um, that morning was for both him and Holly, so thank you to those of you. Can we just give a round of applause? You know who you are this morning. Thank you for that. good to acknowledge those things as a community, um, and uh, certainly we are thankful for them and pray that they're enjoying their first Sunday morning of retirement. Um, having just been through this holiday season, um, we know, and I'm sure we can all affirm, the importance of meals um, in our celebrations, and in, a little bit later in the service, we'll get to celebrate a meal, um, the meal of communion with one another. Um, And maybe we don't even think about the holidays as a meal before, but rather a continual meal over the course of the month that just changes locations and maybe changes the faces around the table. Maybe that's how you think about things this morning. Um, But we know that one thing is for sure, that meals are important. They're important to us as a community. They're important in our culture. And just a few statistics for you about what we've just been through during this Christmas season. Um, Candy canes, if you think about food during Christmas, they're still a Christmas staple. An average of 1.76 billion of those festive minty red and white sticks are made and consumed. Well, made, I don't know how many of them are actually consumed Um, annually. 
Um, that's enough candy canes to travel the distance between Santa Claus, Indiana, which is an actual city, and North Pole, Arkansas, back and again 32 times. Let that sink in for just a moment. The top five most liked Christmas cookies from this past year were sugar cookies, gingerbread cookies, peanut blossoms, thumbprint cookies, and Russian tea cakes. I have checked all of those off my list. Um, 38% of people give away their fruitcakes rather than keep them. Yep. Uh -huh. 19 million chocolate Santas are consumed. And while we know holiday meals are best eaten the day of, we do know that 400,000 people, Americans, will get sick from Christmas leftovers. So this is just kind of a PSA to check your fridge when you go home today. So this morning, we are looking at one of the oldest practices in the church. It's not singing worship songs. It's not praying prayers, taking an offering. It's not even listening to a sermon. Um, but it's a meal. It's a meal, which really, if you're reading the Bible, shouldn't be at all surprising because in Scripture, significant moments are usually marked with a meal. In the Old Testament, which was a culture of hospitality, when a guest came to a home, they would be served a meal. When a birthright was passed on to one generation to the next, they would mark that time with a meal. When temple sacrifices were made, a meal was prepared. When God's people celebrated how they had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they did not do it with a prayer or a song, but with a meal. Even in the life of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus, he is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. And if you read the stories about the meals shared with Jesus, you know that each and every time something happens, each and every time something significant happens, the most significant meal being that that took place the night before he was arrested and then crucified. He gathered his disciples and they thought that they were celebrating the Passover meal. They thought that they were celebrating something that God had done in their past. What they didn't know was that they were celebrating what God was about to do. Jesus passed to them the bread and the cup and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. Eat this. Drink this. Practice this. Think about it. When Jesus shared with his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection, when he invited them through the table to reflect on what this would mean for them and how it would impact them, he didn't give them another theory to ponder. He gave them a meal to share. He didn't give them another theory to ponder. He gave them a meal to share. And so for 2,000 years, his followers have remembered, they've rehearsed, they've celebrated, they've practiced this same meal. Lots of people have debated its meaning, but what we know is that this meal is more than a memorial. It's more than a symbol, but it's at this table where grace gets real. 
This is a meal where community gets real. This is a meal where the good news gets tangible and it gets experienced. Which is why when the Apostle Paul wrote about this meal to the church in Corinth, he took their practice very, very seriously. In fact, we know that at the time that Paul was writing these words, and he was writing the church in Corinth, there was a lot of issues in that day that he was addressing in this letter. There were divisions in the church. People were suing each other. There was sexual indiscretion. It made their gatherings really uncomfortable. It's not this ideal, picture-perfect Christian community. And so Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 11 to address these practices, and he says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. To the church in Corinth, Paul is writing, your meetings are doing more harm than good. These are harsh words. Harsh words that for just a moment, I just want to give you a little bit of context for because they stand as a good guard for us this morning. Because churches in this day, they didn't meet in large sanctuaries. They did not meet in large auditoriums. They met in people's homes. And so they would gather together and they would sing songs and they would pray prayers and they would read scripture. And then someone would come and interpret the scripture. And they would meet together in this space called the triclinium, which really sounds like something from Star Trek, right? <laughs> but this triclinium was a room and it had three couches. And in the middle, there was a table. And the people would come and gather, and primarily men, they would come and they would gather in this room, the triclinium, and they would recline on the couches and the rest of the people would gather in the atriums right outside the dining room. And one thing you need to know is that where you sat at the table during this time was a huge status symbol. We might have something today like the adult's table and the kid's table, right? But that's minor in comparison to the ways that they thought about your position at the table during this meal. What, where you sat at this meal, it reflected something about your position in the community, which is why we read in the Bible the disciples arguing about who will sit on Jesus' left or right. Remember that story? Because that mattered to them, because that was important to them. And so if you were invited to the meal, and if you were a higher status guest, you would sit at the table, and you would get to recline on the couch, and you would get to eat the, the first choices of all of the food and all of the drink. And those who are lower status were left outside, and they would eat all the leftovers. 
Maybe they didn't have a connection with the homeowner, and so they weren't able to come in early to get a good spot. Maybe they didn't help fund the church, so they weren't invited in early like the other guests. Maybe they had to work and their shift didn't leave them enough time to get over to the homeowners to get a good seat. But what was happening was that group that was lounging around in the dining room, they were eating all they wanted and they were getting drunk on all the drink while others were waiting outside eating leftovers and maybe nothing at all. And you know, we might think that's not really a great practice, but really they're doing the important stuff, right? They're still reading the Bible, they're still singing songs, they're still praying, and Paul calls them out and he says, do not kid yourself. Do not kid yourself. This is a huge deal, and in fact, he calls it, this is a humiliation. Because this one practice can risk overshadowing everything else they do, casting a shadow on the good news and discrediting their work in the community. There's a phrase in education today, some of you might know it, called the hidden curriculum. It's terminology that reminds us that in the school there are the official things that kids learn. The reading, the writing, the math, the things that are written in the curriculum. But then there are also the hidden curriculum, the things that our kids pick up. How do teachers deal with conflict? Who sits next to who in the lunchroom? These are just the things that we learn from being a part of a community. There are things that help shape our behaviors, our expectations, our social norms. I remember on my first day of fifth grade, I was at a new school, and at that time it was really cool to tight roll your pants. Um, In case you didn't clue into 80s fashion, or maybe you weren't born yet, this was actually the look I was going for. I also have become aware this morning that this is coming back into fashion. I, I I didn't know that either. Um, I didn't know that this was a thing. And so my first day of school, I became very aware that tight rolling your pants was a thing. But I didn't know how to do it, right? I didn't know how to fold my jeans to make that tight roll happen. And so I just the next day rolled the bottom of my pants, which was not a good move because it looked like a flood was coming and I was preparing myself for it. So I walked into the second grade of fifth grade trying to fit in, but very clearly not fitting in at all. And so my new best friend, Tara, took me aside and unrolled my pants. And I remember getting the informal lesson. No, here's what you do. You grab the loose part of your jeans and you fold it over. And the, the lesson was there for me. That is the hidden curriculum. And Paul is calling out the church and he is saying that what's happening at the table is revealing your hidden curriculum. He says, it's not happening when you sing the songs. It's not happening when you pray the prayers, but it happens at the table because you can see who's sitting next to you and by who you're leaving outside. I mean, think about it for just a minute. You could have a ton of people at your Bible study. You could say all the eloquent prayers. We could have great coffee. We could have the most talented worship team. And if we do nothing, friends, to address the hidden curriculum among us, we do more harm than good. And so Paul says to us, prepare for the table. 
prepare for the table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and 29, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink themselves, judgment on themselves. Again, like Paul's on a roll, right? These are harsh words again this morning. I really debated about camping out in these verses this morning. These are harsh words, but again, they stand as a good guard for us against thinking that communion is just some private moment between me and God. Because if that's all we boil it down to, we miss so much of the point that communion is about the collective us. It's about discerning the body of Christ, the community of God, and looking for the hidden curriculums that we have. It invites us to consider who we've left out, where there might be work to do in our own hearts, where there might be prejudice or judgmentalism and self-righteousness. It invites us to consider where there's just a mentality of us and them, where there might be a lack of love, and invites us to come to grips with the reality that we can't fix it. We can't fix it. Our habits run deep, our preferences or the ways that we judge others are so embedded. And so this morning, as we come to the table together and as we start a new year, I'm just reminded that this morning we know that the left can't fix it. The right can't fix it. More money can't fix it. Better technology can't fix it. Education can't fix it. But Jesus can fix it. And that's why this table becomes so important and why Paul gets so worked up over the table because what the church is perpetuating, Jesus has already done something about it. Jesus already accomplished what needed to be done to solve the problem in our hearts, which is why he rehearses again these words from 1 Corinthians that we often share before a communion. He says it again, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, hear these words. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul here is not just uttering words out of routine. He's not just going through the motions. Paul is reminding them as they gather at the table of who they are. And he shapes in them an understanding that will lead the church as we continue to practice coming to the table together. And so just two quick reminders as we celebrate communion this morning. And the first is this. The table is a place where anyone is welcome. The table is a place where anyone is welcome. In first century Middle Eastern culture, to share a meal with someone was a sacramental signal, a symbol of total acceptance. To share a meal with someone was to welcome them and to call them brother or sister. 
If you had an enemy that you wanted to make peace with, you wouldn't just negotiate a deal, shake hands, and walk out the door. You would share a meal. Which is why religious leaders, they got so mad at Jesus for sharing meals with sinners. At the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, he offered the bread and cup, remember this, to Judas, who had already decided that he would betray him. And now he extends this offer to us as well. Come to the table, whoever you are, whatever you've done, no matter how messed up things look or how broken you feel, and let grace become real to you today. And the other reminder is this, the table is where nobody is perfect. The table is where nobody is perfect. It's a place where nobody gets to pretend that they are better than they are, where everyone is welcome, but not everyone is ready. Where everyone is welcome, but not everyone is ready. Think about this. I mean, think about Judas. He was offered the bread and the cup, but he refused it because he had a different agenda for his life. He wasn't planning on surrendering to Jesus. And so the real question as we come to the table is what's your agenda? What's your agenda? Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. In other words, we don't come proclaiming our own self-sufficiency. We don't play the comparison game, walking into church and taking place, taking stock of our place in the community. But Jesus offers us the table, and as he does, he calls out the ways our hidden curriculum in the church looks like the world around us. And he invites us to come to the table proclaiming his name and not our own. He invites us to subscribe to his agenda and his plans and put ours to the side. He invites us to a party. He invites us to a party. I was telling um, some friends this morning as we gathered to pray over our time together that last night I was invited to a party for my niece. <clears throat> she was turning two. And so um, in typical two-year-old fashion, it was a frozen birthday party, um, complete with my niece, Faya, um, and her sister, Elin, in Anna and Elsa costumes. Um, there was themed party food, toys plastered with Olaf, and lots of singing Frozen soundtrack movies, um, soundtrack music. Um, the Disney marketing budget was not lost on my family. <laughs> it, was, it was lovely. It was lovely. Um, theologian um, N.T. Wright writes in his book called The Meal Jesus Gave Us. He talks about birthday parties and communion. Um, he said, what if a Martian walked into a birthday party? <clears throat> Go with me for just a minute. He said the Martian might ask and wonder about all the strange customs that we carry out. What is a birthday, the Martian might ask. Was she just born? Why is this day special when she was born two years ago? Why do you give people things on their birthday? 
And why do you cover them up only to open them again? Why do you try and set fire to a cake? N.T. Wright argues that people of all times, in all places, in all cultures, say things by doing things. We say things by doing things. In a birthday celebration, the past and the present collide. When we say to someone, I wish you a happy birthday today, and I'm glad that however many years ago you were born. And not only is it about the past and the present, but we also anticipate the future. I look at my niece, Faye, and I think, you have so many birthdays ahead of you. Isn't too great? But there's so much more. We anticipate the future. We imagine many more birthdays ahead. Somehow, N.T. Wright states, the past, the present, and the future are held together in this one meal. Which is why we do silly things like put paper over presents to be unwrapped, we sing all the silly songs, and we light cakes on fire because these things set this meal apart and they make it something beautiful and special. In the same way, we take the bread and we take the cup. Simple elements. Ordinary choices, then when taken together, the past storyline of God's people, it collides with the present reality of Jesus' body and blood, so real that we can experience it. And we anticipate the future of a heavenly party, a great gathering of all of God's people. Friends, this is the table. The table where everyone is welcome. The table where no one is perfect. The table where we say something about who Jesus is by doing something together. Let's pray. Father God, as we stand in this moment, we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge this morning that you are God and we are not. And maybe throughout our week this past week, we have reminders of that. Maybe we've been beaten down and reminded that we are not enough or maybe that we're too much. But as we come before you, we recognize that you see us and that you know us and that you love us and that you've sent your son Jesus. So in this present moment through the communion table, we could as one body touch you and experience you and meet with you in a way that could be real to us. So thank you. Thank you for this reminder this morning and this celebration that we have as your people. In your name we pray. Amen.